The following is a message by Pastor Ken Prater of Durkeytown Baptist Church in Fort Edward, New York. For more information about Durkeytown, please visit our website at www.durkeytown.org. That's D-U-R-K-E-E-T-O-W-N dot O-R-G. I know we've got some new folks, and we really want you to know and feel welcome. We, we are okay with babies crying. Uh, we're okay with kids bringing candy to the pastor when he's preaching or uh, babies crying. And uh, just don't, don't let it fret you, worry you. And uh, we're all going to have a great time together. Mark chapter number five is the passage uh, that we're going to be in. And uh, I'm not going to read the entirety of the text because I'm going to be talking through the text for us and telling the story as we go along. If um, you might think there, when you read in the New Testament and somebody said, you know, Jesus asked the question, who people say I am? And, and they say, well, some say that you're Elijah. And you go, well, why would they call him Elijah? Charlene just read it for us because Elijah was a mighty healer. He raised someone's child from the dead. And they assumed that Jesus had, had uh, you know, was the new Elijah. Elijah had come back in the form of Jesus, because as we're going to read this morning, miracles being performed, even a resurrection from the dead. Mark chapter number 5, our text is going to begin in verse 21, and then we're going to plow our way through this story with some wonderful stops, exciting stops along the way, all the way into chapter 6 and verse number 6. If you read uh, your Bible, and I hope you do, I hope you read it a lot, by the way, But if you read the four Gospels, especially as what we might call human interest stories, how many of you have read or maybe still reading the Reader's Digest? You go into your doctor's office, they got one there from like 72, and you're like, oh, wow, things are happening back then. It wasn't that long ago. Yeah, it was. Um, But anyway, if you read the Gospels like you read the Reader's Digest, you're really missing something. You're missing the point that what the Gospels are telling us is that a divine invasion has taken place, that God in Christ has invaded his world. And this is especially true of Mark's gospel and the apocalyptic feel that it presents. And that word apocalyptic has to do again with a revelation, a revealing, that uh, Mark is showing us what God's kingdom in Christ looks like and what God is doing in Christ to bring his kingdom to the world fully. And so it has this this feel to it. And the sermon this morning is going to show us that God in Christ Jesus is the one who has taken action on behalf of people who face truly impossible circumstances. So that's the first thing I want you to get, that this text is going to show us that God in Christ has taken action on behalf of people who are facing truly impossible circumstances. But then we're also going to see the insidious nature of evil and the power of evil that keeps people in bondage to unbelief, even though all of the evidence that they need to believe in Jesus Christ is right in front of them. They will not believe. They will not take hold of that evidence and allow faith to grow. 
The missionary Leslie Newbigin, who served in India from 1947 to 1974, understood something that I think a lot of Christians miss, and maybe uh, you miss as well. We'll put the quote up on the screen for you. If the biblical story does not control our thinking, then we will be swept into the story that the world tells about itself. And I fear that many even in the church are being swept into the story that the world is telling itself and that you're living more in the story of the world than you're living in the biblical story that God has invaded the world and he is setting things right in Jesus Christ. So in one sense, this entire sermon is asking you a question. Which story controls you? Which story controls you? The biblical story or the story that the world is telling? Which story controls you? Well, the biblical story we're considering this morning is actually quite unpleasant. It's quite unpleasant. It involves a 12-year-old girl who is near death and eventually does die, and then a woman who should already be dead and has suffered greatly for 12 years. In both cases, there's desperation and then there's inability. But in both cases, there's also evidence of humility and courage and faith. And in both of these stories, there is divine invasion, that God in Christ has invaded the circumstances of these people's lives So that hope arrives, healing arrives, and most of all, love shows itself to be true and faithful. We begin with a man named Jairus uh, in chapter number 5, who is a ruler of the local synagogue. Now, between uh, the end of chapter 3, chapter 4, and chapter 5, we've crossed the Sea of Galilee a couple of times. One of those in a near-death experience. But the disciples got back in the boat with Jesus and they went back to the other side. And it's there on the other side that Jairus then comes to Jesus. A great crowd has gathered about Jesus. He's beside the sea there. And Jairus shows up. And when Jairus comes, he, uh, he sees Jesus and um, he falls at his feet. Verse 22. Verse 23, he implores Jesus earnestly saying... My little daughter is at the point of death. Come, lay your hands on her so that she might be made well and live. Jarius is controlled by a story. It is the story of this world, a harsh reality of this world, and that is the reality of death. His 12-year-old daughter is near death. There is no rescue squad to call. There is no medical team to assist. You're not dialing 911. You're not going online to WebMD and saying, what do I do? You have no hope. Your 12-year-old daughter is going to die. But you hear that Jesus is back in town. And you rush to where the crowd is, and there you fall at his feet. You implore him to come and lay his hands on your daughter so that she might live. Mark tells us that Jairus gets up and goes then... uh, Or Jesus gets up and goes with Jairus. And as they do, 
uh, a great throng of people uh, follow. So this, this mass of people there at the end of verse 24 are following. And that sets the stage for the second daughter that we're going to be introduced into the story, although she doesn't know yet that she is a daughter. And this is a woman who has had an incredibly painful, embarrassing, and serious medical issue for 12 years. Charlene Harrington, who many of you know worked as a physician assistant, uh, she was talking to me about this passage, and one of the things she said to me is that from a medical standpoint, the woman should already be dead. But she has suffered with this for 12 years. But in addition to being physically sick, what else do we know about this woman? Mark tells us that the woman has suffered under many physicians. Women in our congregation would understand that certainly more than I do. But then we would all understand that you go to a doctor time after time, you spend all of this money and you're not going to get any better. She spent all that she had and was no better, but now 12 years down the road, she is only getting worse. Hopelessness, hopelessness comes into her life. She spent all of her money, and now like Jairus, she only has one hope. And she expresses this hope because she hears reports in verse 27 about Jesus. And so she thinks into her mind, I'm going to come up to Jesus. I'm going to come from behind. I don't want him to know who I am. And I'm just going to touch his garment. Because if I, I believe if I can just touch his garment, then I'll be made whole. And so here, uh, Jairus has come to Jesus, kneels at his feet, please come, my daughter's going to be dead. They get up, they start going, and then this woman that nobody knows is in the crowd, except there's this mass of people around Jesus, she, she gets her way in there, she touches his garment, and, and Mark tells us then that immediately, verse 29, Mark 5, immediately the flow of blood dries up, she feels in her body that she is healed of her disease. So like Jairus, she takes up her courage with fact or with faith. She acts upon the reports of what she had heard about Jesus. And she pushes her way in. You know, sometimes when it comes to matters of faith and impossibility, the only thing we can do is the thing that is immediately in front of us. We need to kind of get out of our minds this idea that we have to have great faith and do these great things. Climb a thousand steps into the gold pot and there, there it'll be. Jesus will solve all our problems. Or we have to improve ourselves so much, you know, clean ourselves up and then God will finally listen to us. Or whatever it might be that the world tells you. And we need to dive deep into the biblical story. And the biblical story says show up with what you've got. Do what's right in front of you. There he is. Touch him by faith. And she does. It might be for some of us falling down and imploring God for help. It might just be reaching out and touching. It might be through our tears, weeping and crying, calling out to God because it doesn't happen immediately, but just faithfully asking God. But whatever it is, the heart needs to feel desperation and out of that desperation, we need to be willing to exercise faith. Even faith as small as a mustard seed, we're told, do what is right in front of you. And believe God. But, but as we see in this, this text, 
faith must be placed or directed towards Jesus. And it is really important that we see this uh, because, as I said last week, Jesus isn't just moving around in a geographical way, you know, from place to place to place. Everywhere Jesus goes, he's coming from a different sphere of power. He is coming as God in the flesh. Jesus is operating within the full range of God's effective will, which means that he possesses the power to heal and help anyone who would come to him with faith. So when we think about this story as we've arrived at it thus far, there are a couple of details we should not miss because they're going to show us the great love of God, not just the power of God that we sang about. I sing about the mighty power of God, but the song we sang about that, how much the Lord has done for us because he not only has power, but he has love for us. And so when Jairus comes and implores Jesus, he's just hoping for what? He's just hoping that Jesus will come and lay his hands on his daughter. The woman approaches Jesus, and all she has is this one card, if I can just touch him. But in both cases, these people in deep crisis, what they find out is that Jesus is going to touch their lives in a very unique way when he speaks to them, when he talks to them. Imagine the woman, for 12 years, she has heard nothing but disappointment from doctors who have tried to help. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. Chronic illness, disappointment, frustration. You start out, you go, oh, I think this doctor's going to figure it out. Years later, it's not figured out. It might not be a medical issue. It might be some other issue. But you, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Time after time after time, you go, you go, you go, and you think you're going to get help and no help. And now after words of disappointment over 12 years, she is suddenly healed. But, but as she is healed, she, she realizes that Jesus knows something's happened. So Jesus, in verse 30, we're told, perceives in himself that power has gone out from him. And he turns about in the crowd and he says, who touched my garments? If you don't think Jesus has a sense of humor, you're just not reading the Bible correctly. That's funny. Masses of people. It's a throng. It's exciting. People are calling out his name. It is massive. And, and, and he looks at his, hey, who touched me? And his disciples are like, what are you talking about who touched you? Look at all these people. And Jesus is like, yeah, I'm not talking about that. You know, shut up. Go stand over there somewhere. Leave me alone. You're like, like who touched me? And, and, and he looks around. The woman, knowing what had happened to her, how does she come? In verse number 33, she comes in fear with trembling. She falls down before him and tells him the whole truth. With Jairus, he does it on the front end, right? Here comes Jesus, here comes Jairus, fall down, gotta have help, my daughter's dying. But in the case of the woman, she does it on the back end. She worms her way in, touches Jesus, gets healed. Jesus goes, who touched me? She's like, it was me, here's the story. And it's just incredible. It's just incredible. And what 
are the first words out of the mouth of Jesus. Daughter. Daughter. I, that, that's got to hit us. And that's got to be a truth bomb going deep in us. That Jesus, in a very personal way, looks at a woman who for 12 years had been ceremonially unclean outside of the community, has spent all of her money, has endured so much pain and suffering and embarrassment from doctors, is not better, only is getting worse. She's healed. She's wondering, oh no, what have I done? And he looks at her and he says, daughter. If you've ever wondered if Jesus would welcome you, yeah, yeah, he'll welcome you. He'll welcome you. The first words out of his mouth. First words weren't, what are you doing? Don't you know I'm on the way? You know, I got a 911 call. This girl's dying. What are you doing? Can't you wait? You've waited 12 years already. What's wrong with you? Who, what right do you have to touch me? I'm a rabbi. You're unclean. What are you doing? No, that's not what he does. You see, the world tells us that God expects something out of you that God would never expect out of you. That is to dress yourself all up. Make yourself acceptable to God and somehow get rid of your shady past. Be a new person. And then God will love you. But the Bible story tells us, no, God actually loves you. And if you by faith come to him, first words out of his mouth will be love. Daughter, son, child, belong to me. He says, your faith has made you well. And then he says, go in peace. Go in peace. This woman knew no peace for 12 years. That is a really long time. And then he says, be healed of your disease. And it's a stunning display of love and mercy and compassion. He calls her daughter. Faith makes her well. Peace now as a daughter. But what about the other daughter? I mean, can you imagine the, uh, you know, the ambulance is barreling down the road. You run out in front of you, stop and say, hang on just a second, I got an emergency here. They go, what are you doing? Get out of our way. We got to go to another emergency. Can you imagine Jarius? If I'm Jarius, I'm like, what in the world is going on here? You know how long it takes to get a crowd moving? You got to get through a crowd. Your daughter is dying. You know she's dying. This is an emergency situation, and somebody has dared to interrupt the teacher who can bring the healing, and during this little pause, people from the house of Jairus show up and say, don't bother the teacher anymore, your daughter is dead. Just let those words sink in. And you have the tension of 12 years of pain and suffering removed with joy and thanksgiving and peace and immediately someone's world is thrown into despair and grief and hardship and trouble. But Jesus overhears and he says to Jairus, do not fear, only Believe. I mean, honestly, I, I read that, and one of the first things I thought was like, 
I don't think fear would have been the emotion I would have spoken to at that moment. I would have been like doubt or, or grief. You know, don't grieve. But why fear? Fear has been a part of this narrative now for a couple of chapters. The disciples, right, last week on the high seas, thinking their lives were going to be over, they're afraid, and what does is, what is Jesus say? What are you afraid of? Have faith. When, when they get to the demoniac, the demoniac is healed, all the townspeople come out, and they're, what's going on? And they're all afraid, and instead of believing Jesus, they run Jesus out. They say, get out of here. We don't want you around. What is it about fear that drives out faith? Remember what I said about God's kingdom? That, that it's the, the kingdom of God is the range of God's effective will? This is why Jesus says to Jairus, don't fear. Don't fear, because the kingdom of God can reach even into the death of your daughter. The range of God's effective will can reach into death and reverse death and bring back to life. Fear has this power to push us away from faith because faith calls us to look to God and his promises to us in Jesus Christ and fear grips us and says, no, look at, the, look at all, everything that's going around. Look at the stormy seas. Look, the, the pigs were run out of the cliff. Who is this guy? Let's get him out of here. Look at all of this. That's what fear tells us to do. That's the story of the world, which we often get ourselves, you know, uh, tangled up in. But faith calls us to seek the Lord while he may be found, to call upon the Lord while he is near, for he will have compassion on us. Friends, this is a signpost. We need to have this in neon lights so that fear doesn't drive us away from faith. And this should be like instilling in us right now great confidence and hope because as we come to God through Jesus Christ, we see that if Jesus can make you know, ways uh, through these impossibilities so he can do that for us as well. If we too will only believe. The power of Jesus goes out to heal a woman. Words of hope spoken to a woman. And now fearful Jairus and his 12-year-old daughter who has died, Jesus says, well, let's go home and let's find out. And they get to the house, and rightly so, in verse 39, or 38, right? Commotion, people weeping, people wailing loudly. Jesus walks in, verse 9, and he's like, what's all this commotion? What's going on? You know, what's all this weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And what, what do the people do? They laugh. Like, what? It's not going to be a socially awkward situation. What? And they laugh at him. But here's what Jesus does. He puts them outside, and then he takes um, the, Jairus and the child's father, Jairus, and the mother, and then James and Peter and John, uh, and, and, they, and, and they go in with him, and he takes her by the hand. Now, what did Jairus want? 
He wanted Jesus to come and do what? Lay hands on his daughter and she should be healed. But that's not what Jesus does. Jesus takes her by the hand and he speaks to her. He speaks to her. Talitha kumi, which means, hey, little girl, I say to you, arise. And, 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 and uh, Mark uses one of his favorite words, and immediately the girl got up and began walking. She was 12 years old. Of course, she's going to start walking around. Life's passed her by for a few minutes. She's got to play games. She's got to get her jump rope or whatever girls do, right? She's got to get busy. And then Jesus says, hey, like, give her something to eat. Because we need to know that Jesus didn't raise a memory of a girl. He didn't raise the spirit of a girl. He raised a girl from the dead. No wonder they thought he was Elijah. Right? Give the girls something to eat. And they do. This is the biblical story we are to be controlled by. It is not a story. Please hear me. It is not a story that explains why bad things happen. It is a story that points us to the one who can deliver us from the bad things that are indeed happening. That is very important for us to understand. But again, my concern is that far too often, Christians, and of course I think too many in our own congregation, certainly people in the surrounding community, are not being controlled by the biblical story, They're being controlled by the story the world is telling them. Make your own way. You got one life, you better do the best you can with it. Waste your time with religion. It's up to you. That's the story of the world. The biblical story says look to God in Christ with faith. Believe. Do what's right in front of you. Trust God. Part of me wanted to end the sermon here, and, and, and as I some time ago was thinking about this, I said, no, we've got to just deal, we just got to deal with the beginning of chapter number six. The scene shifts. Jesus leaves there. He goes back to his own hometown. The disciples are with him. He begins to teach in the synagogue. People hear him. They're astonished. They're saying, like, where did he get these things from? What is this wisdom that has been given to him. How are such mighty works being done by his hands? And then they say this. Is not this the carpenter? The son of Mary, brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon are are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Why did the townspeople take offense? They they knew Jesus, but they assumed he couldn't be Messiah because they knew his mother, his brothers, and sisters, and they only see him as a carpenter. He can't be Messiah. And, And that, by the way, is a superficial excuse. The actual reason they were not able to work out the source of his wisdom and powerful deeds is because they were unwilling to follow the evidence that was presented to them by all of the miracles and all of the teaching and all of the things that Jesus was doing. 
Just as the people in the hometown of Jesus were under the control of a power that blinded them to the true identity of Jesus, I wonder who in our room right now is under the power of unbelief, under the power of evil, being blinded, unwilling to follow the evidence towards Jesus Christ and give yourself fully to Jesus in faith, coming to him to forgive you of your sins and give yourself completely to Christ. Maybe you just regard Jesus as the carpenter. Oh, yeah, he was that guy in history. Something happened to him, whatever that all thing's about. Seemed like he was a good guy, did nice things for people. That's wonderful. But that's not what I know. A modern world doesn't need that. And this trail of evidence has been presented to us in Mark week after week after week, and some are still sitting on the outside of it. What else needs to be presented? What else possibly needs to be said? Just as they laughed at him in the home of Jairus, are not people still laughing at him today? Just as, as they mocked him then, are they still not mocking him today? To take offense at Jesus is the definition of what it means to live outside of the biblical story. And I fear that every week people are here, and I'm glad you're here. But is it getting in fully to your life? It's interesting that Jesus responds to them. And one of the most, I think, amazing insights, commentaries that Mark gives, we're told that he could do no mighty work there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. And that Jesus marveled at them because of their unbelief. He marveled at them. He was astonished at their unbelief. I don't know how this might work as an illustration, but to uh, get a sense of astonishment, uh, all of us probably know the name, I hope all of us know the name, Babe Ruth, one of the great baseball, it's baseball by the way, one of the great baseball players of all time, and so you're going to start a baseball team, and you get to pick one of two players. Here is the great Bambino, here's Babe Ruth, and here, here's Ken Prater. And then there's the, the crowd waiting to see who you're going to pick with your very first pick to represent your team and build your team upon. And you look and you go like, hey, I'm going to pick Prater. And everybody is what? Like, huh? <laughs> what? You're astonished. Jesus looks at his hometown. And he's astonished at their unbelief. But nevertheless, he does perform some miracles for them. Which, which, again, points us to the biblical story of mercy and grace into which we are invited. That even though we live in a region that just seems to be increasingly hard against the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ, God is still willing to do a few miracles here 
for which we should be very, very glad. This reveals to us again the action that God is taking with Christ, filled with love, filled with compassion. And then not too long down the road from this episode, where people take offense at him, he is going to become an offense. When he is nailed to a cross, a stumbling block, a rock of offense. The compassion that Jesus was willing to give to these people and now is going to be poured out through his body broken and his blood shed as his death provides an atoning sacrifice for sin. The wrath of God satisfied. The opening of faith to heaven's doors. We enter in through faith, through the blood of Jesus Christ shed for our sins. But even as Jesus is pouring out this love and compassion, the laughter returns. This time not in the house of Jairus, but as Jesus is hanging on the cross, the people walking back and forth below him, looking up at him, mock him, laugh at him, humiliate him, shame him. Why? So that you and I would have an opportunity to be within the story of God's grace as Jesus undoes death permanently through his own death. You see, the woman who suffered eventually is going to die. The 12-year-old girl is going to eventually die. But the only way that they're going to rise and live again is if through faith in Jesus, they've trusted themselves into his life. Because what Jesus wins that day on Golgotha's hill is not just forgiveness for sins, but the opening into eternal life, into the eternal fellowship of life. He undoes death permanently for us. Which is why this great day, Sunday, celebrating again the resurrection of Jesus as a reminder of what Jesus Christ has granted to us, and that is life evermore. So let's bring the question back up on the screen again. Which story controls you? Which story are you invested in? Which story guides your life? The biblical story? Or the story the world is telling? What, what more evidence needs to be presented to you this morning? that would then drive into your heart and humble you, that you would fall in front of the Lord Jesus Christ, confess your sins, and receive his salvation. If you need help working that out, please see me. If you've done that or trying to do that and you just need some help with that, please see me. Let me help you get into the story of God's grace which we're going to celebrate now at the table of our Lord, which makes um, in remembrance a symbolism for us of what Christ did that day when his body was broken and his blood was shed. Friends, God has taken action on our behalf, and this is why the future is Jesus Christ. Let me pray. Father, we give you thanks so much for your great love for us and your mercy poured out. 
Thank you that you are with us, even now helping us, caring for our needs. There is massive amount of need in this room. Grief and sorrow and pain and suffering. Health issues, emotional issues, relational issues. We bring all of them to you, Lord Jesus. We place all of them into your care. And we look to you now for strength, for grace, to help us in our time of need. We'll give you a few moments to consider the things we've talked about, and then we'll give you some directions for the Lord's table. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Ken Prater of Durkeytown Baptist Church in Fort Edward, New York. You may freely copy and distribute this message, but please do so at no charge and without altering the contents in any way. For more information about Durkeytown, please visit our website at www.durkeytown.org.